What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Championship Round DFS MVP Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Hernandez, the director of DFS at 444.com. Back with my co-host, Mr. Matt Savoca. Matt, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Always a little sad because you really realize we're winding down to the end here of football season, but two fantastic games to break down. Happy to be here. Let's dive in, man. Yeah, our, our final um, full slate of the season, and, and I mean, obviously, it's only two games, uh, but we also got the two showdown slates that you could attack as well. So if you go on the site now, uh, Matt has two full breakdowns of the showdown games. Uh, my article for the full slate should be up by the end of tonight. Obviously, ownership projections, um, fantasy projections, and all that content is available to all 444DFS subscribers. If you are just kind of checking in at the end of the year and you want to dabble in DFS, this is a really good time to check out 4 for 4 click around the site, see how we do things uh, so you're all prepared for next year. DFS subscription is only $6.99. Uh, we go through Super Bowl, so we will have that big Super Bowl slate. And uh, because it's only one slate, uh, DraftKings and FanDuel usually throw some pretty big prize pools for that showdown slate on Super Bowl. Uh, but let's get right into this two-game slate. As always, two-game slates are, are, are pretty tricky. Uh, my least favorite size slate to play because there's really only so many things you could do. You're, you're, if you're going to play any type of uh, even reasonably large field tournament, you're probably going to end up playing one or two players just uh, don't project well or just aren't good plays. Uh, but but to get unique, you kind of have to do that. Like the you know a, a low-owned player, uh, a low-owned core player on a slate this size is still going to be in that like 30 mid 30s range so um no no one really like easy to train but let's get into this game break game breakdown last week just kind of talk about uh the matchups from both sides of the ball which i mentioned you always break down really well in your articles and then uh we'll go over some of uh, the players that we like to maybe throw some darts at and how we can use uh ownership and leverage projections to try to get a little uh unique on the slate uh first game uh chiefs are three and a half point road underdogs to the Ravens in a game with a 45 and a half point total uh, chiefs with the total of 20.5. That's the lowest on the slate and the Ravens with the team total of 24 points, um, both really good defenses by uh, schedule, just fantasy points allowed uh, Ravens were the best defense in the league across the board. By the time we got to the end of the season, chiefs kind of projected a bit as a run funnel, uh, allowing the seventh most schedule, just points allowed to running backs. Uh, but let's start with the Chiefs side because uh, this is probably the toughest matchup, definitely the tough, toughest matchup they've had in the playoffs, uh, maybe the toughest matchup they've had all year and how we think this is going to play out for Patrick Mahomes and company. Yeah, I mean, on paper, absolutely, right? I think the only thing surprising about this matchup, if you told us at the beginning of the season that this is where we would be at the end of the AFC, is the game total, right? And especially the implied total for the Chiefs, which you talked about. And, and I understand it. it's a very tough matchup for the Chiefs on paper. Frankly, Baltimore is a very tough matchup for any football team. They're first in rush DBOA on offense, third in yards per carry against KC's precarious 27th ranked rush defense. The Chiefs pass defense where they have become a strength. They're top five in DBOA. This is strength versus strength. Baltimore is also top five in DBOA. So obviously, you know where they, the Chiefs need production they need it from pacheco they need it from rice they need it from kelsey and frankly like i hate to boil it down to such basic analysis but they need mahomes to be as good as he was last weekend and if he's not against baltimore's top rated defense that won't be surprising 
But at this point, we know what he can do. We know what he does in the playoffs. And that's really their path to success. Um, I'm surprised to see how popular Pacheco is uh, becoming, especially because Baltimore is so good against opposing running backs. And really, I think this whole game flow for the Chiefs comes down to what does their offense need to do because their defense either succeeded or failed at stopping Lamar. I mean, I'm, I wrote down here that we need to see how well they can contain Jackson when they rush for. So far, essentially no one's been able to do it. Rush for 100 yards last week. Uh, but that's the key to the game for the Chiefs. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Pacheco thing is kind of just encompasses what um, a, a two-game slate is all about. You got the Ravens, um, you know, two running backs that are going to split work. The Lions, two running backs that are likely to split work. So it really just leaves Pacheco and McCaffrey as the big workload guys. And uh, Pacheco, not even necessarily 100%. So uh, he, he's a guy that's just going to, you know, get bumped up to like 50% on this two game slate, no matter what size contests you play. Uh, and as always with the chiefs, uh, one of the reasons that it's hard to project them well against the Ravens is because outside of their big three, the other guys just really don't do anything. And we'll get to that a little bit, see which dart throw we like, but what about the, the Ravens side? Because I mean, it's, it's been all Lamar. Lamar doesn't obviously doesn't need to throw for two fifty and three to have a huge game. We saw that last week. Um, he's, probably getting Mark Andrews back. So that throws a little bit of a wrench in what we expect from the wide receivers. But what is, what is Lamar uh, projection and the rest of his teammates look like against Chiefs? Well, this is really fun. If you check out my article at 4 for 4, every single game, I break down for a expected fantasy points and projected fantasy points chart. And it's hilarious for the core players in this game because it's literally, if you go from the bottom up, it's all the Ravens auxiliary and top options all the Chiefs' top options, and then Lamar Jackson on top of everyone else. So it's Tier 1A, Lamar Jackson. Tier 2, all the Chiefs that we just mentioned, mentioned that trio. And then Tier 3 is this big group of talented Ravens. However, there simply isn't a lot of overall production to go around when the quarterback is taking up this much production. Is it possible that somebody like Azay Flowers ends up with something like a 13-catch, two-touchdown game because that's where the exploit in the defense was. Yeah, it's possible. I don't think that's the most likely outcome against the Chiefs' top one, one of the best pass defenses in the NFL. I, I mean, if I'm looking at it, honestly, if I say, see that Andrews is on a, quote, pitch count and that's going to dampen his ownership, I'm kind of looking there or opposite. Isaiah likely looks fine as well. Still seeing some you know, discrepancies in how the public is perceiving Odell Beckham versus the way that he's being used. Rashad Bateman still has more expected fantasy points over the last three weeks. If you told me Beckham had a touchdown on, you know, five catches, that wouldn't surprise me either. It's just really hard to know ahead of time where this team is going to go. And I think defenses are feeling that same way right now. Yeah, for sure. And, and because of that, uh, you see that we don't have a lot of like top values from this game. Again, only two games on the slate. But if you look at the optimal lineups on FanDuel, uh, the guys in the majority of the lineups from this game, you only get Mahomes, Rice, and Justice Hill. On DK, you get a, a few more guys in here. Lamar fits in as a little bit better value on, on DraftKings. Uh, Justice Hill again, Isaiah Pacheco a little bit cheaper on DraftKings. DraftKings relative to the salary cap, uh, Rasheed Rashi Rice, and then on DK, it kind of always wants us to have some punt play. So Odell pops in the optimal lineups, not necessarily popping if you just look at overall values, but Odell is popping in the DraftKings optimal lineups. But um, I, I think if we 
are going to be successful in the slate. We are, as I mentioned, going to have to have some uncomfortable plays. Um, and, and it kind of feels like a crapshoot because we see whether it's this game or the late one, these ancillary, ancillary players maybe you know getting three or four targets a game, if that. So is there anything that pops from either side for you from these guys that aren't projecting well but might make it into the optimal lineup this week? Uh, I think a couple things that uh, I spotted. Marcus Valdez-Scantling only had two catches, but he had the second most receiving yards he's had in a game. We saw him with a blow-up performance in last year's playoffs that really propelled the Chiefs towards their Super Bowl. Justice Hill was another player who continues to see more and more usage, essentially looked like the starting running back if you if there is one on Baltimore. I believe it was a, a season-high 15 opportunities for him last week. But at the same time, if the Ravens are playing with, let's say, a one-touchdown lead, and they're looking to protect that lead, don't be surprised if they go to Gus Edwards and a very Lamar Rush-heavy game plan as well. Uh, and again, I, I mentioned the tight ends as well. Likely is playing like a starty, starting tight end and getting back a Pro Bowl-level tight end. Uh, you know, this offense just has a lot of ways it can beat you. I do think I want to take my chances here, especially when I'm talking about large field tournaments and multi-entry. Yeah, I mean, the Justice Hill one is interesting because he has been playing well. Um, he, he will get some work in the passing game. Uh, Chiefs don't give up a, a lot to, um, or, or they have given up a lot to running backs um, uh, when you adjust for strength of schedule. I've already heard, you know, leading up to this, like people talking about how Justice Hill outtouched Gus Edwards. And, and obviously we need to kind of pick apart every little detail and edge on such a short slate. But I mean, he touched him, outtouched him 15 to 11. And like you said, Justice, if Justice Hill is going to be twice as owned as Gus Edwards, I think we kind of be, need, need to take into account um, the fact that uh, Gus Edwards probably is touchdown or bust, but with only two running backs commanding a huge workload on this slate. I mean, that touchdown alone can count for a lot. Um, as for Andrews and likely, I think likely is interesting because if you look at the cumulative ownership projections right now, as we've said multiple times already, there just aren't a lot of good ancillary plays. So it's actually kind of driving up the tight end ownership because we've got multiple good tight ends on the slate. So I actually think we're going to see a lot of two tight end builds on this slate this week, even more so than you might see on a normal two game slate. So I think likely is kind of interesting in those builds. If we are building with two tight ends, maybe not investing so much salary in like a, a Kittle, um, uh, Kittle Andrews build and, and instead doing something like getting a contrarian likely in that lineup. I like that a lot. And, you know, if we're just looking over the, the course of the last three weeks, five weeks, or I was even looking back to, Week 11, just from a pure opportunity value standpoint, that makes a ton of sense. Just looking at the tight ends, we'll get to that next game, but there's just a lot of talent, a lot of a lot of really good yards per route run, and a lot of good opportunity value to go around, not to mention decent matchups. And I think one of these two players in Andrews are likely is probably going to be left by the wayside by too much of the field, and that's, that's kind of where I'm looking to get different. Yeah, what would you? How, how would you think about? Because I, I think if, um, like on the Chiefs, it's pretty clear that like if Mahomes gets there, you could play. If you play Rice and Kelsey with him, like that's a lot of ownership. But you know that if he gets there, his studs probably get there. And you, you could double him um, with Lamar. It's a little tougher, right? Because he could do so much through the ground. So, how would you think about pairing Lamar? Uh, how many pass catchers would you be willing to pair him with? And do is it 
is there a scenario where Lamar and one of his running backs gets there in the same lineup? I do think there is a scenario. So to answer your question, yes. When we're talking about a two-game slate, that's the kind of way to differentiate yourself without getting way off the board. Because if you said, okay, Jackson does his thing and Justice Hill gets 15 opportunities again, that's that's enough opportunity value among those two players for them both to hit their ceiling. Uh, one combo I want, I want to shout out specifically in this game that doesn't look like it's getting as much ownership as its ceiling and its salary should imply that it should is this Lamar Jackson-Rishi Rice combo. Because let's say Lamar Jackson has a really solid game. Somebody is going to have to step up for Mahomes and the Chiefs. Rice maybe doesn't get as much uh, attention because of the way Kelsey played or the way that Pacheco is priced. I like that combination. I would pair Lamar with up to two pass catchers, but I really only feel obligated for one. And I don't even know if I, I'm going to make a hard and fast rule that I have to do it. If you're going to score two touchdowns on the ground and run for 100 yards, I don't need to play anybody with you if I don't want yeah. to. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I probably should have said this at the top of the um, show because it is so hard to, uh, to, to exclude players from your pool because on such a short, short slate, anybody that's getting significant playing time is in your player pool. Um, at the top of the full slate breakdown, uh, there are links to um, how to play short slates with kind of uh, five or six bullet points on some really detailed things that you could do. It, we don't want to just be throwing, you know, three or four sub 10% players in a lineup on a slate like this. You're just giving up too much projection. So you, you need to think about those unique combos, whether it be, something like I'm you know two running backs from the same game like in the late game or or you know having defenses against your offensive players um going really really heavy stacks or or doing those running back quarterback stacks that, that maybe you don't love doing on a full slate I think is very important um on the ownership side of things like like we said we aren't getting a ton of ownership on this game relative to the late game because there just aren't many places we could go so we actually have no raven projecting for over 40% ownership on either site which i said is you know that that uh 30ish percent ownership is kind of that mid tier but we don't have anyone up in the 40% echelon which is like kind of the i don't know i think top 8 or 9 players in terms of projection so i mean if you are doubling lamar you're already going to have some, uh, you know, some contrarian uh, um, uh, benefit built in there just because none of the guys are projecting as mega chalk. And then on DraftKings, Mahomes is actually projecting relatively low to the other quarterback because he's a little more expensive. So if we're looking at, as you mentioned, Pacheco up at the top, if he comes in at, you know, 50%, we do something fucky with our running backs, probably probably not fading CMC and Pacheco, but if you some get some kind of, Mahomes triple without Pacheco that's probably a little bit of a unique play I totally agree and again we're really talking about game theory at this point more yeah. than what's actually going to happen mm -hmm. in the game of course yeah. once players get on the field they are uh it, it's it's not about what salary you paid to acquire their services but at the same time this is really about the push and pull of where ownership is going and where the game flow could could help us find an alternative path to a high probability lineup. Yeah, and um, I, I do think people are probably a little bit curious because we've just been talking about it so much in these uh, in these playoff weeks about those Chiefs ancillary pass catchers. I mean, I I'm pretty comfortable that like I, I just don't think Mikal Hardman is going to do it. But we saw Noah Gray get an increased um, a, a little bit of increased snap share last week. 
Justin Watson is is kind of a guy that you know he's getting the route participation uh, again, not going to get a ton of work, but I mean, do, is there anything that you saw from Justin Watson or Noah Gray that says they might be um, interesting factors? I know we kind of said we like likely for the for the uh, Ravens is like the the deep dart throw, but anything on Watson or Gray? I would say that I am limiting myself at least to one of this group because I'm just kind of done picking. Yeah, for overall, sure. I think MVS is the one I'll take. I'll just take the free air yards. Okay. Watson yep. was that player earlier in the season. If you looked at a stat like weighted opportunity, um, yep. Whopper, uh, he looked pretty good, but that's been fading. Like you said, Miko Hardman, actually, if you look at the expected fantasy points per game over the last three weeks for the Chiefs, Hardman has the highest of the ancillary options. I'm not trusting mm -hmm. that, especially after the boneheaded fumble last week. And I said it last week, and I'll say it again. I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a good pivot in tournament play when Pacheco is going to be so popular, especially yeah. with the injury, like you said. And and again, I mean, on this slate, um, you know, two running backs that are that are going to project for full workloads. Um, the Lions running backs both good play, so I, I do think it is a really good slate to uh, you know throw some darts at whether it be you know Gus Edwards or Ceh um, in these really large fields if you're playing the Millie. I think there's actually really good plays. You know, even even on two game slates, a lot of times um, you, you don't have to go way off the board at running back. But I think this is a pretty good spot to do it. Uh, before we get to the second game on the slate, I do want to remind everybody about Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. Go to PrizePicks.com slash DFSMVP and use code DFSMVP for a first deposit match up to $100. And if you play three player pick them that we are playing here, you can five extra money. Um, and for those that tagged along last week it hit very nicely so hopefully we can follow this up get a hot streak going to end the season a few plays that stand out to us starting out with this late game jared goff he is projected for 261 and a half passing yards we'll get into this i think the lions are going to have a very tough day especially passing uh they like where they like to attack is where the san francisco 49er strengths are even if they're playing for behind from behind i see goff having a tough day like goff for less than at 261 and a half rushing yards we already talked about lamar how much we love lamar 65 and a half yard projected rushing is a huge toll for a quarterbacks, but Lamar's just going to get there. Lamar's going to do his thing. He's going to do whatever he has to do uh, to make sure this Baltimore offense is rolling. So I like Lamar for more than 65 and a half rushing yards. And then again, in this late game, Jameer Gibbs, 22 and a half receiving yard projection. No, I said I don't like golf, but I do think that there's going to be a lot of dumping down. Jameer Gibbs has cleared 40 yards in each of his two games in the playoffs after only doing that twice all year. So they're using him in the past game like Jameer Gibbs for more than 22 and a half receiving yards this week. Again, five extra money with that three player pick them. Don't forget to go to prizepicks.com slash DFS MVP and use the code DFS MVP for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. Let's get on to the second game of the slate where we have a lot more flexibility and uh, a lot more options to choose from. Uh, and that's because the game has a total of 51 and a half points and both teams have uh, a few more players than they use than the game, than the teams in the early games. Lions seven and a half point road dogs with a 22 point total. Niners seven and a half point 
favorites with a huge total of 29 and a half, clearing the field by uh, almost six points. So let's start on this Lions side. As I mentioned, I think it could be a really tough day for them. The way they match up against these 49ers kind of plays into the Niners' strength. So when you look at this matchup uh, for the Lions, what do you see against the 49ers? It really comes down to can the defense uh, stop or contain the San Francisco offense? Because Mm -hmm. I think there's a possibility that the defense dictates what the offense has to do. And we know that the quote unquote identity of this team is, you know, they want the ball first. They want to score first. Well, they really might have to outscore San Francisco. And I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on a game that already happened, but I don't think people realize just how good Jordan Love was playing at the end of the season to make San Francisco look vulnerable defensively. And frankly, I just don't see those types of statistics and metrics from Jared Goff, as well as the team overall has played. Uh, Even as we get into the playoffs, Jared Goff's key metrics, you know, since week 13, he's slightly below league average and completion percentage over expected. Just for comparison, Jordan Love was second best during that span. Jared Goff just above league average in true drive success rate. Jordan Love was third best in the NFL. And Jared Goff was just above league average in EPA. Jordan Love, again, second best in the NFL during that span. This was a superstar in the making quarterback, making San Francisco look slightly vulnerable. Unless Jared Goff can play like that, I don't really know how this team gets it done. So I'm kind of agreeing with your assessment here. I think it's possible that Detroit has a good enough offensive coordinator and good enough weapons. Like you said, Jameer out of the passing game, Amon Ra is going to get his and Laporta is off the injury port where it's possible that they can make this a shootout. I talk about that in my article as one of my most likely scenarios is that this game actually goes over its implied total. But if you're asking me what really happens here, I think they have a rough day. Like you said, Uh, that does that make Amon Ra unplayable? Absolutely not. Does that make Jameer Gibbs unplayable? Absolutely not. The one player I'm probably fading uh, or being under the field on is Jared Goff. I don't think he necessarily has to get there, even if his top skill players do hit their projection. Yeah. Um, this, I, the, and, and we'll get into to the players um, a little bit after we get uh, through the 49ers matchup side, but um, the, the Lions scare me because they're getting so much ownership, especially in their ancillary players. And and like you said, I, I think it's kind of getting artificially inflated, up, uh, artificially inflated just by the fact that we have a whole slew of, of players in the early games that nobody wants to play at all. So we're getting these huge ownership numbers on Jameson Williams, on Josh Reynolds, um, when, when I think they kind of are in the same range of outcomes as some of these, you know, Odell type plays as well. Um, one question I have is I, I think a you said uh, you know they, they the off the defense is going to dictate what the offense does. The only the one kind of like lazy narrative I hear is like you know maybe they try to play keep away and and you know use Monty to do that. I mean, I just don't think, I think that's a lazy narrative because I think it's really hard to do that against good teams. And that's why they're good teams, right? Where you're not just going to hand the ball off to Monty three times and kill the clock. Like, I, I, I don't think that um, Monty matches up particularly well either, just because of the chance that uh, the, the 49ers play a good game. What are your thoughts on the Lions running game? Honestly, I like Montgomery, but in lineups mm-hmm. where you think Detroit is going to succeed or at least keep sure. pace sure. with san francisco i mm-hmm. want i want david montgomery in games where detroit scores plenty of touchdowns and that's right. not impossible exactly. here 
in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed, the San Francisco 49ers defense looks a little bit different than some advanced metrics like DVOA, where they're still looking like some of the best defensive units in the league if you look at their secondary and their defensive line. In AFPA, you know, our stat over here, four for four, there are situations where they play effectively from a real football standpoint, but they still give up fantasy points. And against explosive teams and explosive players like Jameer Gibbs or teams that get to the goal line a lot, like the Detroit Lions, we're talking about a team that was top three in offensive touchdowns scored per game during the regular season, you can play their running back even if he's quote-unquote fading into that secondary role. And also, we got to mention, Laporta is off the injury report. The fact that Zach Ertz is on the field might might theoretically help him because there are going to be situations where there is a a more viable cat pass catcher than uh, than Brock Wright, or at least in defensive coaches' minds. Though Brock Wright did have a really nice play uh, against the Bucks last week, I do think that that could help open up the offense for Detroit to the point where. I'm starting to think where Laporta having a better than expected game might be the actual hinge point for this offense. Mm-hmm. If he can open yeah. up the middle of the field, that can do good things. Yeah, after after looking still a little bit hobbled in the wild card around Laporta had 11 targets, was second on the team to Amon Ross 14. No other player uh, on the team had more than four. So obviously going to be a huge focal point for them. And, and yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it, that if, if they are going to keep pace, I think their, their dog's got to do it. Um, let's look at the 49ers side because all things point to the 49ers being able to do absolutely whatever they want. Um, the Lions are one of the big Biggest pass funnels in the league finished the season ranked 11th in fan, uh, schedule just fancy points allowed to running backs, bottom two against quarterbacks and wide receivers. Um, but with a player like CMC, we don't even really care about that good ranking against running backs for the Lions. So, I mean, it, it just looks like the 49ers are going to be able to roll this game, at least on paper. So I guess the question comes down to not so much of how good of a matchup is it, but who is it a good matchup for? Um, Debo dealing with that shoulder injury and also the most expensive uh, 49er or or pass-catching 49er, so kind of in a funky spot for him. But how do you see this playing out for the 49ers, and is there any way that they do struggle again? I don't see much of a way that they struggle against a defense that was, since week 11, the second worst defense in the entire NFL in adjusted yards per attempt allowed only to Washington's historically bad defense this year. I really actually like, from a game theory standpoint, the wide receivers, just for obvious reasons from a matchup perspective. Could CMC get there? No one has to tell you that CMC can get there. But we just got word from Adam Schefter right before that uh, we started talking about this, that Debo Samuel will play in this game. So that means they're going to be full strength for this game. I particularly think that people are still underrating the effectiveness of George Kittle just because, again, the talent pool around him is so good. But we're talking about uh, the highest QB tight end, QB rating when targeted, the most yards per route run, and somehow just sixth in fantasy points per game. We saw what he can do in just one play last week. So if you're asking me what the best matchups are, I actually think it's this wide receiver tight end trio. Plus, there's the game theory aspect where everyone's going to be gravitating to Christian McCaffrey. He's the best value play uh, on both sides, so it's not a bad play. But just because people are going to be less inclined to go there and the matchup looks great, that's where I want to put my money on. 
Yeah, we're, I mean, <clears throat> depending on the size of contest you're playing in, uh, McCaffrey's going to be anywhere from 60 to like maybe 80% owned. The problem is he, on, on Fandle, he's crazy expensive. He's over, I think he's at 11 on Fandle. Yeah, and he's nine on, on DK. Um, but he's also projecting for six more points than any other player on the slate by DraftKings points. That's a huge gap. Lamar down at 20, CMC almost at 27. Uh, so relative to the field, his projection is just huge. Uh, one thing that we talk about <clears throat> in that that little intro that I have in my article is a link to one of our old podcasts talking about late swapping with the most popular player on the slate probably being around 70% and also most expensive player on the slate. It is going to leave you a lot of flexibility for late swap. And and I, I think it would it's probably gonna be it's probably bad not to have CMC starting uh to start the day in your lineup. But if you have a rough day early and CMC is going to be in 80% of your lineups, like you have to have some, some pretty big swaps coming here. So yeah. Um, and to your point about, to, about it uh, being a good setup for Kittle. I mean, this is a, you don't get a stronger tight end slate on this four game slate, but with such a good tight end field, uh, Kittle is still projecting as our best, best tight end value um, on both sides. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the the studs look like they're going to stud, but they're also going to be pretty highly on Kittle is is going to be around 50% on DK. So if you're starting with with Kittle McCaffrey lineups and you uh you you whiff early even on on one or two plays, probably want to be getting off them and and I mean Debo like I said probably the lowest owned in that group. And you're not really sacrificing that much ceiling. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is right. yes, CMC ceiling is higher than everybody else's, but it's not so much higher. You know, all of these players that we're talking about in this San Francisco trio are more than capable of a 30-point score here. The player that I think might be overlooked as well is Ayuk, who only finished the season third among wide receivers in yards per out run. You know, he's absolutely terrible. And all of their median projections, Ayuk, Kittle, and I believe Debo are going to end up slightly higher than the core players for, Gib uh, for Detroit in Gibbs, Laporta, and Montgomery. That said, I like this, this middle value and we'll get into these ancillary pieces as well. I like basically Gibbs, Laporta, Montgomery, as well as Jamison Williams and Josh Reynolds, I think present very solid values all around, especially with the game environment we're expecting this to be. Yeah, and that's showing up um, in, in our value plays, whether you're just looking at the list of value plays or looking at the optimal lineups. Uh, as I mentioned, there weren't that many popping in the optimals uh, from the early game. Brock Purdy, CMC, Jameer Gibbs, Brandon Ayukamano, St. Brown, George Kittle, Sam Laporta, Jameson William, Williams, all popping up in a fair amount of optimals um, for both FanDuel and DraftKings. Uh, I think that, uh, let me see if I had that right. Yeah, those all, almost everybody from that list is projecting for at or above forty percent, except for Gibbs and the Porter on the lower end of that that thirty percent uh, ownership range. So you can play these these plays and and not have a a ton of ownership on them. But um, if we aren't going to play them, let's talk about some of these ancillary guys because, as I mentioned, on the Lions side, a lot of people are going to look at Josh Reynolds and Jameson Williams um, as guys to pay down for. On the Niners side, when you get away from the obvious suspects, I mean, it, you it really is just straight up throwing darts. You know, if you're playing like a Juwan Jennings or something like that, or or maybe an Eli Mitchell, um, even though he, I think he played what one snap last week or something like that. But um, it, are, are any of these deep 
cut guys standing out to you this week? No, is the short answer. This is, as I say a little bit in my article, the auxiliary pieces for Detroit are utilized so much differently, uh, read more than the San Francisco auxiliary pieces. The, the San Francisco offense, obviously explosive, but keeps their production very compressed to their key players. It's actually kind of nuts to me how much salary you need to get to someone like Jawan Jennings. If he were somewhere in the you know 3,600 range on DraftKings, then we could have a different conversation. But we're talking about a player who's sub five expected fantasy points, who is more in salary on DraftKings than players like Josh Reynolds or Jamison Williams, who simply have larger roles on their offenses. Um, the only player really that's in this lower end salary range for the San Francisco 49ers, uh, if you just look at our value ranking, uh, our value metric over at 444.com, the 49ers defense. If there is a situation where Jared Goff really struggles and we see the splits with him uh, against pressure and not against pressure, if they're able to get home, this could end up being a mistake-filled day for Goff, and that's where the 49ers defense, which right now projected about 20 to 25% ownership, not crazy, looking at like a pretty nice value at 3,300 on DraftKings. Yeah, is there, um, is how, how heavy would you go on 49ers builds and still play a DST in a 49ers onslaught? Because obviously, if their defense is scoring or even scores a couple touchdowns, that potentially caps some of the upside of their um, of their players. But they can also just go out there and still drop a 50-burger and have three players get there. So uh, how heavy you, are you willing to go on an onslaught with, with a DST in the same lineup? I hadn't parsed this out fully, but I'm yeah. thinking I'm playing this more like showdown, where I'm mm -hmm. happy to actually go with an, a full onslaught lineup. Yeah. Is it slightly lower probability than a one-game slate? Yeah. But I do think that there are scenarios, low probability as they are, where CMC hits one or even two of Kittle and Ayuk and Samuel hit, and the DST is the only one, let's say, with you know three sacks and a touchdown. The others have middling scores. I think that is in the range of outcomes for this team. Probably not going Purdy two of the stars and the San Francisco defense, because that's just a lot of things that need to be break right to get to the very top of lineups or uh, of contests. Yeah. I, I do think that if people are um, onslaughting 49ers or, or doubling Purdy, uh, it's, it could be a little bit expensive, especially if you're including CMC in those stacks. And because of that, I think a lot of people are going to be uh, very intrigued by using uh, Josh Reynolds or Jameson Williams as the bringbacks because it's going to save them salary on DraftKings specifically. Like it's right now we have Amon Ra projecting like at or below Williams and Reynolds on DraftKings in terms of ownership. If that happens, it's like one of the most egregious things that's possible on a two-game slate, and I'm doing everything I can to get Amon Ra St. Brown in my life. Right. Whether whether it's with yeah. sort whether it's with a stack in this game or just as like a well, I guess we probably don't have too many one-offs, but just not in a um in an obvious stacking situation. And also with that, I should note that the reason it is very hard to project um uh, ownership on slates like this is because it comes so much down to the size of your contest and your specific contest. We could see ownership wildly, even between similar size contests. If you're playing a couple of different hundred mans, you know, you could see a monorat 45% in one and 25% in the other. And, and that's what makes this very difficult. That's what makes things like paying attention 
uh, leading up to the late swap uh, to take advantage of these things um, and why we should be doing things like coming up with these unique builds, leaving salary on the table, because if we do uh, get ownership wrong. We still want to give us give ourselves outs to be unique. So you know, maybe doing some things in the optimizer where you're leaving eight or nine hundred dollars on the table on purpose. I really like that a lot. Not to mention, you know, if we think of ownership instead of just in single player values, in group values, we've talked a lot on this show about uh, duos and trios of players that we really like. I'll mention another one here. A, a combo I'll have a lot of with the San Francisco 49ers is Jared Goff. Because Goff gets the ball right back. Let's say that is it is kind of a shootout scenario. But San Francisco's getting home. They're getting sacks. They've got the turnovers. And they're, let's say, the only ones who get a touchdown defensively. They'll probably end up in the optimal. That doesn't mean Goff had a quote-unquote bad game overall. So I do think when you start to look at two- and three-player combos, then that ownership or projected ownership can start to get a little bit more consistent. It's still wild and all over the place, like you mentioned. But uh, at the very least, it can smooth it out a bit. Yeah, and and earlier you said you don't want to be overweight on golf, but I mean, if you're if you're playing something like a hundred lineups, golf is projecting sub twenty percent. So you know you can have you can have six or seven golf lineups out of your hundred um, and still give yourself some outs that way. Uh, I, I'm really going to be looking to Gibbs on the slate, as I mentioned. Uh, CMC and Isaiah Pacheco, the only ones that are projecting for uh, huge ownership numbers or and huge workloads, um, and with Gibbs and Monty keeping each other's ownership in check and and the most likely thing to happen is Alliance playing from behind and maybe maybe even playing behind very big. Um, I'm really going to have my eyes on Gibbs and then uh, just kind of getting away from Chalky Reynolds or Williams and trying to get to some of these earlier dart throws that we talked about, um, like the likelies, like the Zay Flowers. I, I think it's probably um, the easiest with the getting away from the cheap chalk wide receiver, even on a slate this short, is always one of my favorite ways to go against the grain. I like it a lot. And as we mentioned earlier, the other, the big game theory aspect is two game slate. You have to consider late slop, especially when playing Christian McCaffrey. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Christian McCaffrey and Lamar Jackson have different ceilings than all other players on this slate, but it's not impossible. And when you have a lineup that is struggling a bit after the earlier game, you really need to think long and hard about the decisions you're going to make. Do that beforehand. Uh, you're going to enjoy your Sunday much better that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, uh, some more detail on those concepts are in the article going up tonight. Those showdown articles are already up for four for four subscribers. Uh, that does it for the final full slate podcast of the year. We will be back with a Super Bowl showdown slate podcast the Friday before Super Bowl. Uh, probably will be a little bit on the shorter side. Might throw some fun things in there just to keep it uh, intriguing. And, and the uh, TMAP team has some pretty fun podcasts leading up to the Super Bowl as well. So make sure you are subscribed to all the 4-4 podcasts. Please rate and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. As always, five stars helps out a ton. If you're watching on YouTube, please like the channel. Please subscribe to the channel. And uh, hit that notification bell so you know when we are going live. And as I mentioned, if you haven't signed up for the DFS subscription yet, only $6.99. Just get a little taster before the season ends. Uh, get used to the site so you can uh, be locked and loaded when we are back here for the 2024 season. And leading up to kickoff on Sunday, you can catch Matt and I in the Discord. You can also catch us on X slash Twitter. Matt is at Draftaholic. 
Four for four is at four for four football. I'm at TJ Hernandez. We'll talk to you guys in two weeks.